Welcome again to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson. I'm chair of the Political Science Department at Providence College and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those of my guest. Well, the midterm election is now over. Uh, it seems that even some of the uh, races that were awaiting full recounts and completed counts uh, this weekend finally were settled uh, in Florida and in Georgia, where the, the Democratic candidates uh, who happened to lose in the contested races uh, finally conceded. So uh, we thought it was a good time to uh, uh, have a little assessment of the election, uh, what happened, uh, why things happened as they did, and to look forward a bit and see what the impact this election is going to have on American politics. So to engage in that discussion, I've invited back uh, two people who have already appeared on the podcast, Professor Adam Myers, who kicked off the podcast discussion of the election uh, back in August, and Matt Guardino, who was more recently uh, talking about the, the election. And so I've asked them to come back and uh, give us their uh, analysis of, of what happened in the election. Uh, in the previous podcast, I went over the credentials of both uh, Professor Myers and Professor Guardino, so I will not repeat those again. Uh, just let me say they're distinguished members of the Providence College Political Science Faculty. <laughs> So, uh, Matt and Adam, thanks so much for uh, joining us again on Beyond Your News Feed. So, to start off, Adam, uh, could you just give a brief sketch of the overall election result, just to bring us up to date on exactly what happened a couple of weeks ago? Sure. So, um, in the lead-up to the election, Republicans uh, controlled the House and the Senate. Um, they also controlled a majority the nation's governorships, and they controlled the presidency. So nationally speaking, um, the Republican Party was the dominant party. In the race for the U.S. House, for control of the U.S. House, which was probably the most competitive um, race nationally, Democrats needed to pick up 23 seats um, in order to take control of the chamber. Um, and at this time, it looks like they will have picked up 38 or 39 seats by the time counting is all done, because act, as a matter of fact, there are still five races for the U.S. House that are outstanding. Um, and so a 39, 38 or 39 seat gain uh, for the Democrats um, in House races, um, historically speaking, is really quite impressive. I can get into that, into that more um, if you like, Bill. But for now, I'll just say that by historical standards, it's a very impressive gain of seats. Um, and it speaks to the fact that I would say, objectively speaking, um, by any measure of what we would, would be considered a wave election, this was, in fact, a wave election um, for Democrats. Um, as far as the U.S. Senate races are concerned, the story there is a little murkier because Democrats went into uh, this election having to defend an awful lot of seats that they won in 2012. Right? Senate, uh, senators served six-year terms, so the Senate class um, that was up for election this year was last up for election in 2012. 2012 was a big Democratic year. Um, and so in 2012, Democrats managed to win a lot of Senate seats in states that are generally inhospitable for Democrats. So they had to defend uh, 10 seats in states that President Trump won in uh, 2016, um, whereas Republicans only had to defend one seat in a state that uh, Hillary Clinton won in 2016. 
And so of those uh, 10 Senate seats that Democrats had to defend in, in states that Trump won, um, they successfully defended six of those. Um, were, and uh, in the one Senate seat in a state that, um, that Clinton won, Republicans lost. Um, so, so Republicans picked up four seats. Democrats picked up the one seat in Nevada, that in, which was the state that um, Clinton won in. Um, and in addition to that, uh, they also won the Senate race in Arizona, which is the state that Trump won. And so all told, Republicans picked up two seats in the Senate. So, you know, Republicans made gains in the Senate, but it could have been a much worse night for uh, Democrats than it was. Um, and in governor's races, I would have to say that um, the night overall was a pretty good one for Democrats, although not as good as it could have been. Um, they won back governorships in crucial states like Wisconsin and Michigan. Um, but the narrow losses of Democratic candidates um, in Florida and Georgia um, have to be disappointing for Democrats nationwide. Good. So, so Matt, would you agree with uh, Adam that we can... We can uh, designate this election as a blue wave democratic election? Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that assessment. Um, it's especially given the political and economic conditions, it was a pretty impressive gain of seats for the Democrats this year. Um, uh, although I think they probably uh, could have wanted and maybe expected even a little bit more. Uh, but I would say it was it was definitely a wave. Okay, so we're agreed that we, we did have this blue wave. Uh, so the question is, why did it happen? And, and it seems to me that there are a couple of uh, different narratives out there trying to explain why the Democrats uh, were successful, particularly in the House. Uh, one narrative is a, I guess you could call it a progressive narrative that says Democrats uh, won because they mobilized new voters with intensive grassroots campaigning, uh, emphasized issues like Medicare for all and a higher minimum wage. And with those issues and by that grassroots mobilization, uh, Democrats did well. An alternative narrative uh, is the moderate narrative that says uh, the reason the Democrats did well uh, was not by uh, this sort of progressive mobilization, but rather uh, that Democrats attracted affluent suburban voters who in the past uh, probably voted Republican, but are now upset with Trump. And the Democrats did so by emphasizing more moderate policy stances like appeals to protecting uh, the uh, pr pr protecting uh, preventing insurance companies from denying people insurance because of pre-existing conditions. So so what do you think of those two narratives? Uh, which one uh, should we uh, look to as probably explaining what happened? Uh, Matt, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, so I do. Uh, I think it's complicated. Uh, I, I would say that actually both narratives have elements of truth to them. Um, and I think that perhaps, uh, you know, both kind of needed to occur for the Democrats to have gained the number of seats that they did. Right. So, uh, I think there's no doubt that more moderate voters in suburban districts were crucial for Democrats in, in some of the House races. Uh, but also, there was a lot of progressive energy uh, in many states that I think probably drove turnout higher than normal or what would be expected in a midterm election, particularly among certain groups like turnout among young people. Um, so uh, I do think that both have elements of truth to them. Um, I also think that we need to be cautious about sort of attributing labels to the 
uh, some of the incoming House members. I mean, we often just think sort of liberal or progressive, moderate or conservative, right? But I do think that um, that there there are some moderate uh, members who were elected who uh, have certain ran on certain very progressive policies. Uh, and could be part of coalitions to try to get progressive legislation passed in the House, even if they're moderate on other issues, and even if they made campaign appeals that were pitched in large part to appeal to the kinds of affluent suburban voters that, that you mentioned. So we have to be cautious about sort of putting these, uh, these folks in, you know, two strict categories or camps. Would you agree with that, Adam? I mean, I think there's something to the argument that both narratives have a grain of truth. I would agree that there's something to the argument that both narratives have a grain of truth to them, but I think that the bulk of the reason for why Democrats won control of the House, certainly, and also the reason why Democrats uh, did quite well in the Senate races um, in the states that Republicans were contesting, um, is more in line with the second narrative, the narrative focusing on um, wealthy suburban areas. It is true that, as best we can tell, turnout among people under the age of 30 and millennials and so forth was up this year. Um, but it was up across all demographics. Um, as best as we can tell, based on the latest data, um, the electorate this year was somewhat younger and somewhat less white than the electorate in the last midterms. But it was still um, considerably wider and considerably older than the electorate in the 2016 presidential election. And, and that's normal for midterm elections, that, that, right? That's, that's normal, but this is simply to say that, that the change wasn't as, as, as massive as might be depicted. And I would also say that if you go race by race in the House um, and look at the districts that flipped and that allowed Democrats to take control of the chamber, you see a clear pattern. Um, these districts almost exclusively are suburban districts, wealthy suburban districts, um, many of which supported Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, and so I think, you know, my explanation of the Democrats, you know, taking control of the House this year um, is a relatively simple one. Um, what, uh, Democrats and wealthy or folks in wealthy suburban areas turned out to vote largely as a rejection of President Trump, largely as a result of antipathy toward him, the person. I don't think it had as much to do with public policy as... as you know, some of the analyses that are out there might suggest. Um, and, you know, if you look at the kinds of districts that Democrats picked up this year, it's really rather incredible. I mean, these are districts that in many cases have been electing Republicans um, for decades. Uh, you know, districts um, that were a part of the Republican, the, like the, the core of the Republican base 30, 40 years ago. Um, you know, some of the richest suburban areas in the country, including in the South, as well as in the non-South. Um, these are really the districts that, that flipped um, in this past election. And what's striking is, you know, I, I, I did some statistical analysis on this um, about a week ago, and I discovered that the 10 wealthiest districts in the country, at least as measured by median household income, are now going to be all represented by Democrats. That's unprecedented, um, given the fact that the Democrats are a party that purports to represent working people, the lower classes, and so forth. Um, now, this is not to say that the poorest districts in the country are represented by Republicans. They are not. Um, the poorest districts in the country also tend to be represented by Democrats. Nonetheless, um, I think it's pretty clear that the Democrats, um, sort of their House majority is kind of a House majority based in the richest and the poorest areas of the country. 
And that's going to be a very interesting factor uh, to take into account as we look at look toward what uh, Congress un- or the House under Democratic control will be doing in the next few years. Well, Adam, you, you've given us a lot to think about there. So uh, let me push back a little bit on the on the policy uh, side of it. And, and Matt can sort of chime in on his view. Uh, the Brookings Institution, uh, I just found this actually this morning. Uh, they've just uh, published uh, uh, an account of, of those those districts that flipped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the interesting things about them is that uh, you're absolutely right. They are certainly wealthy. Uh, but uh, what's really interesting in the Brookings analysis is that the those districts that flipped from Republican to Democrat uh, resemble very closely in terms of uh, a medium household income, uh, the uh, real uh, gross domestic product produced in that district uh, per worker uh, as uh, democratic districts overall. Uh, uh, you are right, though, in, in this analysis, it shows that the median household income in these flip districts is actually higher than in democratic districts overall. What's really striking is how different the democratic districts overall and these flip districts are to the Republican districts that remained in this election, which are much poorer. Um, but to get to the policy point, uh, the other uh, argument that the Brookings study makes is that uh, these districts that flipped, along with Democratic districts overall, uh, seem to be connected to the global economy. Right. Uh, they are districts where... They're cosmopolitan the, districts. They're, where there's a lot of professionals, people in digital services, um, uh, where there's a rather... Uh, uh, there's a somewhat smaller share of jobs in manufacturing than in Republican districts. And I'm wondering if, uh, you know, Trump's trade policies may have been a factor in these districts that, that look on Trump, uh, uh, not only unhappy with him as a personality, uh, but also not too happy with, uh, the policy direction. He seems to be going in this sort of hostility to, uh, our, uh, allies, uh, these uh, aggressive trade policies, uh, that too, I think, might be a factor in why these districts might have shifted. I think you're right. I, I wouldn't discount those things. Um, but I would I would simply say that in terms of, you know, their pocketbooks, I think wealthy suburbanites are doing quite well these days. Uh, the stock market, you know, is at record highs and so forth. Um, and so, you know, in terms of, you know, the effect of the Trump presidency on their bottom lines, I don't think that, you know, um, people in these wealthy suburban districts that flipped um, have cause to reject Republicans as of yet. Um, no, I, I would say if you look at the survey data, it's 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 fairly clear that um, what is motivating a lot of what, what motivated a lot of folks this year to turn out to vote against Republicans or to switch from vote from voting Republican to voting Democratic is the personality of the President of the United States. Um, and 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 I and I don't think that that I, I don't think that that factor can be really exaggerated. Uh, the the you know, the the response to you know his perceived racism and sexism, and particularly among you know suburban women, I think was the decisive factor in this election. Matt, what do you think about all this? Uh, I actually uh, on on that issue that that matter I tend to agree with Adam um, and I think that I think I want to also bring up another key demographic factor that's closely tied to income which is education 
So I don't know what the data looks like in the districts that Adam, you were talking about in terms of educational attainment, but um, you know, it, it's certainly plausible that a lot of the vote against or for Democrats, which was a vote against Trump on the lines that Adam was suggesting, had a lot to, had had a lot more to do with sort of well-educated professionals, um, sort of a backlash against not only Trump's personality and rhetoric, but some of the things that he's been saying about issues like immigration, right, the, in the Supreme Court. Uh, controversy recently and, and gender issues more broadly um, and that so I think policy wise one thing to kind of be clear about here is that it it's not necessarily the case that there's any policy mandate that's very clear from this election for the Democrats now that they've taken the house to sort of be very moderate about economic policy I don't, I don't think that there's any any sense that even in these suburban districts that the, the reason why these candidates won was because they were pitching moderate so sort of social and, and economic policy messages to, to a kind of well-off electorate I think it had a lot more to do with uh, less clearly economic issues and the president's personality and rhetoric and how uh, I think education played a big part in that. Well, what's interesting about this is, I mean, if, if both of you are right, that it was really Trump's personality was a very important factor here. Um, in, the, in the races themselves, we know that a lot of these moderate districts, uh, the candidates didn't talk that, all that much about Trump. They talked about these moderate, you know, policies. Uh, uh, so so, so what that's, what's that about? How, how could Trump uh, be the factor when candidates seem to, on the Democratic side at least, uh, seem to downplay of promoting their antipathy towards Trump? Well, it's hard to know how those messages were received by voters, but what we do know is the statistics concerning how people voted, and, and, and the statistics that we have thus far at the aggregate level suggested that there was very little ticket splitting this year. In fact, ticket splitting fell to historic mm -hmm. lows. Right, so people voted the same way for governor as they did for senator, as they did for congressman, as they did, as they did for state legislator, which which suggests that, you know, people um, viewed this election in a highly nationalized, highly partisan lens, or from a highly nationalized, highly partisan lens. And so if, if that's true, then the particular messages that, you know, particular candidates were making in particular districts don't seem to have mattered all that much. Um, the national partisan environment, I would say, is what really mattered. And the national partisan environment is entirely oriented these days toward what people think about the president of the United States. Right. And, uh, and interestingly, uh, Trump himself uh, probably did a lot to promote uh, those reactions to him uh, during the campaign. Uh, so uh, uh, Trump was in the ballot. And uh, as he said during the campaign, though, I guess now he's saying he wasn't, uh, but he was in the ballot. And, uh, and his, his going out and having these rallies in, um, in a very public way uh, may have really backfired on him, yeah. just convinced people who already were predisposed not to like him to, to turn out and vote against so, him. So if I could jump in here on that, I think Adam's on to something uh, about the national political environment. But what I would say is that I think people are getting their information and their sort of political messages from a variety of sources, especially well-educated folks in some of these districts. And there were certainly, you know, not if not the necessarily the campaigns themselves, there were certainly 
uh, other political actors, left-leaning political actors, uh, bloggers, uh, pundits who were making clear connections of, of this being a kind of mandate on Trump's performance. I think a lot of voters made that inference, even if the, the particular candidates in their races weren't. I would also say that uh, I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment. There are some of these uh, candidates who didn't talk too much about Trump that, Bill, you were mentioning, I'm wondering if, if they had stressed, uh, sort of tied or associated their opponents with the Trump administration more and made this more clearly and explicitly right in their races uh, a sort of mandate on Trump. I'm wondering how that might have affected the votes in the margins in those districts. Uh, I don't think there was any anything to lose, really, for them to do that, and I thought it was a kind of a peculiar strategy in some cases for there to be skittishness about it, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, given the makeup of the districts, given the national political conditions, and given the, the ways in which Democrats have you know, reacted right in the electorate against, uh, you can see it in, for president's approval ratings, of course. So uh, I, I think that's interesting. The other thing I wanted to add quickly to kind of push back on the progressive versus moderate narrative question is that you know, with so little ticket splitting, as was just mentioned, one has to wonder how many folks came out to vote who otherwise don't typically vote in midterm elections uh, and came out to vote because of uh, sort of progressive energy and organizing. Or you think about the candidacy of, of uh, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, for example, who didn't win, uh, but came closer than many people thought he would. So how many people came out to vote largely energized by a candidacy like his but then just voted straight Democrat, right, on the ticket, including boosting, right, potentially helping to boost some of these marginal House districts, right, in favor of the Democrats. Well, and it's, it's true that there was at least one or maybe more districts in Texas that flipped and to fact, the Democrats, and, and probably because of the, the better O'Rourke factor, right? Quite possibly. Um, but what's interesting about so at the moment, I believe there are two districts um, in Texas that flipped from Republican to Democrat, and there's a third one that's outstanding. It's one of the five districts that hasn't been called yet. But what's fascinating about the two districts that flipped are they are you know paradigmatic examples of the kinds of districts that I was talking talking about at the beginning of the podcast. These wealthy suburban districts, Texas Seven, um, which is includes basically the wealthiest neighborhoods in Houston. Um, the River Oaks neighborhood, which is, has, has historically been old Texas oil money. Um, and uh, I, I don't remember the number, but the suburban Dallas district, which includes um, the home of former President Bush um, in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the city of Dallas. Uh, these are the kinds of districts that nobody could have imagined would have been represented by Democrats 20 years ago, right? These were the districts that began the Republican realignment of the South 50 years ago, right? When, you know, prior to the 1950s, there was no Republican Party to speak of in the southern United States. Um, and the Republican Party began to make inroads in the South precisely in these wealthy suburban areas outside of Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, and so forth, um, before it spread out into other territory. Now it seems like um, these wealthy suburban areas in the South are leading, in the, leading the way in a sort of counter-realignment in the South toward the Democratic Party. And that's really fascinating if um, one thinks of the long-term implications, right? I mean, there's a lot of talk these days about North Carolina arguably already is a swing state, Georgia becoming a swing state, Texas becoming, becoming a swing state. It seems like um, Democratic inroads in, in wealthy suburbs are sort of presaging that. Yeah, that comment makes me think of actually Arizona and Kirsten Cinemas win there, where it seems a lot of a lot of those factors were were present as well. 
And in her campaign, she she seemed to strike a moderate stance, uh, but may very well have uh, uh, benefited from antipathy towards Trump uh, in, 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 in her electorate. And, and uh, McSally, who was her, her opponent in the race, uh, may have been a, made a grave error in moving closer to Trump at the end of the campaign. He came there and campaigned for McSally. That might have really helped uh, cinema in the end. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And I think going back to a comment that you made earlier about the extent to which the president tried to make this election a referendum on him, um, to the extent that he did that, it completely backfired because, you know, what the results of the election show is there was a shift toward Democrats practically everywhere, right? I mean, even in these um, states where Republicans unseated Democratic incumbents, right, those, do- those Democratic incumbents did considerably better than their state's partisan lean would suggest. Um, and so it is true that rural areas across the country um, stayed with the Republican Party and that and the Democrats were unable to pick off congressional seats in rural areas. Um, but it is also true that Democratic candidates did better in those areas um, than they have done in the past few election cycles. And so I would say that there was a, a, a pretty uniform direction um, that the electorate in this country took. It's just that, you know, it was... uh, parts of the country moved much farther in that direction than other parts of the country. Uh, Can we shift focus a little bit here? So so this is a good election for the Democrats. Uh, They made some gains in the House. They now have uh, control of the House. So if you're the Democratic leadership in the House, how do you take advantage of this moment? What, What do you do in response to the voting patterns if you want to uh, maybe lock in some of these gains uh, for the future? What what would you advise the senior Dem- Democrats? Pelosi or not Pelosi? Uh, uh, investigate or not investigate? Uh, what do you think? Do you want to start off with this one, Matt? Or? Uh, I don't know if I can give any sage advice, but I, I, I do think it sets up an interesting series of uh, political choices for the, for the Democratic caucus in the House. Uh, and, and kind of a, a difficult kind of balancing act, right? Um, I do think there will be a divide. Uh, there already is emerging a pretty clear divide between so-called moderates and so-called progressives, uh, including some of the, some of the new folks who were elected. So the, the new f- class of Democrats is diverse in many ways, but also diverse ideologically, among other things. And uh, some of the more progressive uh uh, members were uh, running on very, very left policies like Medicare for all, for example, um, and uh, and also are very much in favor of extremely aggressive investigations of the Trump administration. And uh, that's playing out a little bit in the battle over Pelosi's speakership. Uh, but I also think that has to do with some calls for fresh leadership, including from moderates. So I don't think that's necessarily just an ideological battle in the Democratic Party. I think there are other things going on there. Uh, we can think of people like Seth Moulton from Massachusetts has been vocal in, in kind of the leadership controversies, and he's not really a, uh, a progressive or, or a left a left wing Democrat in the way that some of the some of the newer faces are. Um, but uh, I do think that uh, it, it it's interesting because on the one hand, right, you have moderates saying we need to be constructive and potentially try to compromise with the president to do things that so then we can show at the next election and we can get things passed, right? Even if they're half measures, according to some people's lights, right? So things like an infrastructure plan. Um, 
The counter argument to that is that, you know, that a lot of the progressive Democrats are saying we would rather have, you know, they, they ran on big, bold ideas, right? So for infrastructure, big kind of public sector oriented, you know, Green New Deal, right? Things like that. And they say, well, we would rather have something like that if we can't have that because the Senate blocks it and or the president vetoes it, which would be highly likely then that's an organizing cry. That's a political rallying cry in two years to bring turnout up even higher to right to try to push the the discourse you know further to the left, right? Uh, and I think there are going to be debates internally, uh, and that they're going on right now that are going to be really difficult for the Democrats to solve. So that progressive strat- strategy would imply the House putting together legislative packages uh, in some of these areas and, and basically say. Uh, this is our, this is our platform. This is we will pass these in the house. We'll demonstrate that this is what we stand for, and and go and run on that uh, in 2020. Uh, that perhaps not exactly, but that that sounds a little bit like the strategy the Republicans were following under Obama. Um, I don't know whether we would say it was a success or not. Uh, they certainly were not able to do that the first two years of the Trump administration. Uh, they failed to pass a repeal of Obamacare. But but would you say it's a comparable strategy that, to what the Republicans did? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think so. And, and, and in an odd way, I think in many Democratic strategists are in, in terms of, say, the, the so-called Justice Democrats and other kind of progressive groups that have been driving this energy have been being very clear that they're trying to take some lessons from the, from the Republican, the sort of Tea Party and sort of right-wing Republican playbook strategically on that. You hear talk of creating, for example, a caucus potentially in the House that would be kind of a counterweight or a mirror image of the Freedom Caucus, right, on the Republican side, to try to, right, be, even if they can't get their way, right, ultimately on policy, to be a place where these ideas, uh, you know, have life uh, and can be used to uh, eventually, right, build coalitions to to make them happen, right, with some more succeeding electoral wins. Well, the the Freedom Caucus was perpetually a thorn in the side of the Republican speakers, uh, Boehner and then also Ryan. So, mm-hmm. so that if, if Pelosi does become speaker, that might be something that's going to bedevil her uh, as she tries to exert uh, leadership. Um, so I would actually, I, I think that Democrats cannot get away with pursuing the same sort of tactics in 2019 that Republicans pursued in 2011 um, for a number of reasons, but chiefly because I don't think the Democratic Party as currently constituted is, is a kind of a movement party in the same way that the Republican Party was in 2011, where there was this incredible like gra- like grassroots kind of um, organizing all oriented around opposing um, the policies of the president of the United States. Um, you know, the Democratic Party instead is this kind of complex mishmash of of a variety of social groups and and a variety of social interests and again the 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 coalition the 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 district-based coalition the democrats have put together um in order to take control of the house is, is such that they really are going to encounter a lot of problems if they try to pursue a strong progressive agenda so if for example take medicare for all right this is an idea that a lot of democrats ran on um, it sounds great to a lot of people at the theoretical level, but of course, the challenge in, in, in expanding Medicare to the entire American population is figuring out ways to fund 
that program to pay for it. Um, paying for that program would, you know, again, based on, you know, the kinds of um, revenue raising, raising measures that Democrats tend to support, um, would likely entail um, significant tax increases on the wealthy. And I have a hard time imagining um, a lot of these Democrats that were elected from the wealthiest congressional districts in the country um, two weeks ago supporting, you know, um, you know, massive progressive taxation measures. Um, so I think a lot of this stuff that the progressives have run on kind of, um, you know, it's, it's good rhetoric for campaigns and it sounds good in the theoretical realm, but I have a very hard time imagining that Democrats are going to actually, you know, act on these promises, at least in the way that the, you know, that the, the Democrats most progressive candidates promised during the election. On the other hand, I mean, a, a slogan like Medicare for all, I think really what's behind that is a, 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 a claim by the Democrats to want to provide you know, universal health care to, to make it possible to, to make sure that everybody has access to, to health insurance. And there's certainly a wide range of ways to do that. I mean, uh, the Amer Affordable Care Act or Obamacare was, in fact, a, a, an effort to, in that direction. It seems certainly the Democrats uh, are united behind that and certainly aren't going to disavow that. So I'm wondering whether the, the, the divide that, that Matt mentioned within the Democratic caucus between moderates and progressives uh, might be bridged around coming up with, uh, say, a, a, a health insurance proposal uh, that would maybe emphasize expanding upon uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, um, making it more uh, uh, to cover more people, and that that could in fact, mollify the progressives and, and be perhaps an effective uh, way of, of signaling the Democratic Party's commitments. So that I think is certainly conceivable. And actually, you know, there may be, you know, a possibility for bipartisan compromise along those lines. You know, Mitch McConnell has said that now the Democrats have taken control of the House, that Republicans are effectively given up or will effectively give up on repealing the Affordable Care Act. And I think there's um, a, I think there's a lot of reasons why the Republicans would want to take that deal, uh, given the way uh, the healthcare worked in the midterms, where the, they simply got nowhere in trying to claim to be. Uh, that, that I think they want to. They would be very happy to put healthcare behind them as an issue. And, and there's a growing, and it's interesting actually. There's you know there's there's growing rhetoric coming out of Republicans, including the president, concerning the need to uh, you know. For, um, most prominently um, lower the cost of prescription drugs. Um, and, you know, the parties have somewhat different ideas about how to do that. But I could conceivably see some sort of legislative compromise being hatched on, on that issue. So, so Adam, you and I are agreed that maybe health care might be an area of compromise between yeah, the parties. Matt, absolutely. what do you think about that? Is that? I mean, uh, it's conceivable that it could be. I mean, I think it would still be kind of a tough road for a variety of reasons uh, to, to kind of get the buy-in on that that would be necessary. But I want to push back a little bit on the the, the issue, the, the point that Adam brought up about whether, you know, uh, something like Medicare for All with its large tax increases could be a winning issue for Democrats in some of these districts, right, in two years. So whether or not the candidates themselves are willing uh, to to support that, right? I think that's an open question. But I think what the, the sort of more left-leaning Democrats are banking on is that uh, that public opinion, even among uh, affluent Democrats, is not necessarily rock solid against tax increases to pay for universal health care, depending on how they're done, depending on how the appeal is made. Uh, and 
I don't think it's clear in public opinion data that, you know, uh, upper middle income Democrats are rock solid against, ta- you know, tax increases on the wealthy. Right. Uh, I think that 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 there's a partisan divide clearly on that issue. There isn't as much of an income divide as there used to be. Uh, I think the the more left leaning Democrats see see openings there again, maybe long term, uh, maybe not necessarily that will bear fruit right in the next couple few years. But right, what they're trying to do is push the party uh, to the left over over the long term. The other thing I would say real quickly is that. Although I take Adam's point that there isn't the kind of movement party energy at the Democratic on the Democratic side that there was right, in the Tea Party time, right for the Republicans, um, I think there's more of it than than is evident from just kind of paying attention to the mainstream media and just the kind of kind of inside the Beltway narratives. I think it's starting. Uh, I think it's largely a policy based energy, so it's similar to the to the right in that way. Uh, it's uh, not just against President Trump's personality and behavior, but it's against his policies. And it is an attempt. We'll see how successful it is to do the kind of years long work that uh, would need to be done to push the Democratic Party to the left in the way that the kind of Tea Party and other forces ended up pushing the Republican Party to the right. Uh, and so I think that it's, it's early, but there are signs that, that there's something like that going on on the Democratic side. So I don't think we can bring this conversation to an end, however, unless we also talk about the other big problem facing the Democrats in the House, and that is investigate or not to investigate. So what do you think, how are they going to manage that? What, what should we expect? Well, I think they have to investigate. Uh, it's pretty clear that, that uh, you know, their base wants them to do it. It's pretty clear that a lot of people voted for Democrats this year, in large part because they wanted a Democratic House to be a check on President Trump. Um, but there is the real danger of overreach. There's no doubt about that. There's a, there's a danger that, you know, that the Democrats will, have, will be perceived as, you know, utterly focused on, you know, impeaching and removing the president from office um, at the expense of substantive policy issues um, and and as a result, the perception could be that they are you know not focused on the issues that the American people care about. They're focused on their vindictive drive to oust Trump from office in sort of an illegitimate way. Um, so you know they have to be careful, um, and you know these investigations have to proceed um, at the same time as you know real efforts at public policy change proceed. So you're suggesting a balance there of investigate, work on legislative initiatives. Uh, I'm wondering about media coverage there. Matt, maybe you can enlighten us a bit. Uh, Suppose the Democrats pursue such a strategy to try to to balance those two things. Uh, Is the media going to give them coverage in both those areas, or is the media going to focus only on the investigations? And perhaps in spite of the Democrats' effort not to focus completely on investigations, uh, the reporting will suggest that they're doing that. And, uh, and certainly Trump will be will be out there claiming that's all they're doing. Yeah, so so this is the, the one point at which I would agree with what Adam just said about the danger of overreach. I don't think in, in principle there's as much of a danger of overreach as we might think. But I do think that danger comes from the, the way that these kinds of investigations up to and including right moving toward impeachment 
really tie up the agenda of the news and just the political discourse overall and and can end up uh, presenting an unhelpful political picture to the to the public as bill suggested the media is not that interested the mainstream media in covering public policy right in general um, right even without major exciting dramatic investigations going on when those investigations are going on the focus is going to be on those things and it could it, it could detract right from the kinds of policy messages that the democrats want to send um, I don't think there's as much of a danger of overreach, though, in terms of, you know, that 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 could hurt the Democrats electorally um, uh, as much as we might think in, in two years. I think that, you know, that I don't think a lot of swing voters, independent voters who are the folks who might be swayed right to vote, say, against President Trump in two years. I don't think it matters to them. I mean, President Trump is unpo- quite unpopular among independents uh, and among sort of people in the middle as it is. And I don't see that changing very much in the next couple of years, absent some dramatic events uh, in his favor. So I don't think there's a, a lot of political risk uh, in terms of uh, the electoral prospects of the Democrats for being pretty aggressive investigations. The, the risk comes from allowing the policy stuff to be hijacked by it. Very good. So, well, this is going to be a long conversation, a lot for us to uh, be thinking about and talking about in the in the weeks and months to come, so maybe we need to gather again in six months and and uh, recap uh, what the long term effects of the 2018 midterms were. Uh, but until then, I think we'll wrap it up for today. Uh, thanks very much to Professor Matt Guardino and Professor Adam Myers for their insights into the 2018 election. Uh, thanks also to Chris Judge who once again uh, provided the technical assistance uh, and to uh, Joe Carr of the uh, uh, Providence College uh, Department of Marketing and Communications. And finally, thanks again also to our listeners. Uh, If you have not subscribed yet to uh, Beyond Your News Feed, please do so. And please tell uh, some friends about us. Uh, Thanks so much.